Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group here at the Fraud Summit in San Francisco. I'm talking with Gray Taylor of Conexus. And Gray's been on a couple of panels today, mostly revolving around EMV and the migration of fraud as a result of EMV. Gray, I'd first like to ask you about a panel that you sat on this afternoon where you discussed some of the first-party fraud implications and some of the migration trends that we might see there. What do you think we can anticipate as we make this move to EMV in the U.S. based on what we've seen in other markets? Well, you know, for one thing, we're going to see it's going to be much slower than an overnight kind of shift over to other fraud. But we know that fraud and the people who are in the business of fraud have infrastructure that they want to preserve, and they're making a lot of money. And so what they're going to do is they're going to seek, as the, as the tools become more sophisticated, they're going to seek other ways to defraud society. And they're going to get deeper and deeper and deeper into it. As I spoke about with the University of Texas experience a couple of weeks ago, the ability of these guys to go in and replicate what online marketing companies are doing only in the pursuit of constructing either a synthetic person or just taking an ID is astounding. And it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's where they're going to go because once they own your base credentials, they own you. You literally would have to go back and change your social security number, your driver's license number, your date of birth, all of those things to totally be free of these people. And that to me is probably one of the bigger dangers we've got. It's going to make card fraud look like uh, child's play. Well, one thing that you mentioned this afternoon that I thought was interesting is in the wake of all of these breaches that we've seen, and I'm not just talking about card breaches, I'm talking about breaches such as Anthem, the OPM breach, where all this PII is exposed. You mentioned today that one of the frightening things about the migration to EMV is that fraudsters will be able to take this data, open new accounts, and then they're basically going to have a secure fraudulent transaction. Right. And we're starting to see that. And when I, the last time I was over in Europe and talking to some of the Dutch bankers, that was their number one issue. They've got secure transactions. They've reduced transactional fraud, but they still haven't nicked in the bud. The whole idea that somebody is opening up a fraudulent account, moving money in. And we've heard several great speakers here today that have talked about you know, how you can construct this and circumvent all the, the current thinking in what is a fraudulent account by looking like the perfect citizen, hiding in plain sight, and then making your move and taking a lot of money when you do it. And it's an all an automated thing. It's it's a very low overhead, and they can do it remotely, and they're very organized. And so, you know, for this to happen is uh, something that, you know, I just see that's where the easy money is. And as Willie Sutton said, you know, he robbed banks because that's where the money was. Well, you brought up a parallel between what we might see with EMV and what we saw with Apple Pay, where there were users who were stealing mobile phone numbers and then stealing PII and then opening legitimate Apple Pay accounts. What can we do to enhance verification of identities, or is there nothing that we can do in this environment where everything's been breached? You know, it, it really boils down to this, and from a mobile perspective, is we need to embrace mobile as the next generation of payment, and it's coming much faster than the card brands would want it to come. Part of the reason why they're doing EMV is to lock in a foothold in the mobile space because it's just happening. And so near-field communication is that foothold for them. I've got members in, in Europe that have said, boy, I, you know, I wish we hadn't done EMV because everybody's clamoring for mobile and I can't do it because I've got this EMV investment that I'm paying for. Sitting in your hand is the greatest authentication device ever. We balk at doing eight-character passwords. These can effortlessly uh, pass a, uh, a megabit passcode that's random and is is variable um, all at the instruction and and really what that boils down to is moving the credential risk from big monolithic databases moving it to this handheld device yes if somebody steals my device they potentially could hack in the question is everything about security is is the juice worth the squeeze for the thief 
you know, if I've got an alarm system and I've got a Rottweiler and I've got a Smith & Wesson and my neighbor has nothing, who is going to get robbed? Mm-hmm. And so that's really what it's about. And I think mobile has not been fully leveraged yet. Google is doing some great things there uh, where they can just surreptitiously decide, you know, determine if the right person is handling that phone. And without any effort, they can validate transactions with a high degree of security. So let's talk about validating transactions through mobile devices. There's been a lot of discussion surrounding biometrics and the use of touch identification. In fact, I use that on my my Apple phone, and I know that a lot of other users do too. Could that be a way then that would be another way to verify the user that would take out the password from the equation? You know, absolutely. It's a combination. It's it, And the military has it right with PIVI. In the PIVI world, you have level one, which is just simple password, all the way up to PIVI five, which is I'm gonna, I need nu- nuclear launch codes, and I'm going to go through a whole gyration of stuff to prove I am who I am with that little handheld device really being the arbiter as to whether I'm doing it right. You can take some of that learning and put it into a consumer phone and learn how I hold the phone, learn how I you know, turn on the phone, use a combination of biometrics, using a fingerprint, retinal IDs getting better. You could get as secure as you wanted without really becoming overbearing touch the screen, it's looking at my eyes, checking my retina, and I put in my four-digit passcode, and the phone is now unlocked for me to use. And I didn't really have to go through many gyrations to do that. Then on top of that, you can put in other layers that say, look, I'm never going to have the the PAN or the account number in the phone. It's always going to be the token vault. So you can put all these layers in place that basically blow apart and, and, and decentralize the data, and it makes it a very unattractive target. Um, and then, of course, we've got secure elements and sandboxing in the phones, which has been there in, since uh, Generation 4 KitKat, actually 4.0, which would keep all of this secret stuff separated from the rest of your operating environment and really inaccessible. So it's developing, it's developing quick. What we need is vendors who are going to be going in there and saying, this is how I'm going to do secure stuff with a phone. Instead of saying, this is how I'm going to do a wallet, then I'll worry about the secure stuff. So let's talk about the liability shift date, which is October 1 for EMV. Obviously, the U.S. market isn't going to make it, and this is something that you discussed on the final panel that you did today. Where do you see the U.S. market? Do you think that we'll ever be completely EMV compliant? I think we're going to be about 20 days late. Um, <laughs> The 2015 date is going to be a total blow-through, and I think every consultant in the business is, is pretty much called it. We're not going to have the cards, and we're not going to have the terminalization. We're about neck and neck, according to what I'm, you know, Visa's reporting and so forth on terminalization and carding, but it's under 20%. So when are we going to be terminalized? I've been hearing that on the POS basis in my market, the latest that they've been hearing is Q4 for the indoor POS. And that's by virtue of the fact that you know, you've got 300 certifications to take things through. And as the demand for that or the install base for that certification gets lower and lower and lower, that gets thrown to the back of the queue. That's in my market again. We have the 2017 date. Mm-hmm. So all this work we're doing right now is very distractionary for what's happening in 2017. 2017 is going to be a complete mess. I'm taking a very quick wag at saying that, you know, given the constraints in the marketplace, when we had uh, specifications dropped on us, which is only four months ago, we probably are looking at a 2023 ubiquity date mm-hmm. in the MBN dispenser. 
And along the line, there's going to be a lot of blood. My estimation, there's going to be close to $850 million worth of liability shift fraud that's eaten by the industry while they're paying to get to that point. I think we're also going to see a certain percentage of the sites that can't afford it. Right now, it's about 30% of our sites could not afford to pay for it in the installations out of cash flow because it's $32,000 right. per store. We're going to see a certain portion of our sites go out of business because what will happen is they won't make the investment because they can't, and then the fraud will migrate to them. And then they're in this disvirtuous cycle, which is, well, I just lost more money, so I, I'm even less able to go out and pay for this. And at some point, they're either going to just say, I'll do the inside and no more pay at the pump, or just get out of the business. And just to clarify, Gray, the liability shift date for pay-at-the-pump terminals and ATMs is 2017. It's the same for both of them. Is that correct? No, ATMs are 2016. That's the middle ground. So ATMs 2016. But what I'm hearing from my guys is that they're already there. They've been investing quite a bit. The private label ATMs might have a problem, but all the bank ATMs are, are pretty much there. Now, when it comes to the pay-at-the-pump terminals, I know that these types of terminals are very expensive, and you and I have talked about this before, and just all the investments that convenience stores and the petrol industry have made to be PCI compliant, that's been a big expense. They've also had other network expenses that they've had to invest in over the years, which has made things even more difficult. And they also don't replace these terminals that often, right? I mean, how long is the life cycle for a pay-at-the-pump terminal? A pay-at-the-pump terminal. Well, a pay-at-the-pump terminal gets a lot of, it's really a, it's a mandate life cycle. But if you left it out there and said, I'm not going to make any spec changes to it, it would last 15 to 20 years. Okay. That's what a gas pump lasts. And what we've been doing, and, and I've hear, I'm hearing this issue coming up from all of my major royal members is, you know, yeah, every two years we're going out and making this major investment in, the, in these units. They're no longer 15-year units. We have to depreciate them over five years. That's it. And this is a huge upgrade because we don't see more than 25% of the dispensers really able to do an upgrade, a simple upgrade. And then there's another percentage that's going to have they can do a more complex upgrade in some cases we're talking about a head replacement in some places it's just not worth keeping the dispenser just go out and buy a new one for seventeen thousand dollars a piece it's going to cost our industry the current estimate on capital expense is going to be about thirty three point nine billion without carrying costs and maintenance so do you think there could be to tie the conversation back to mobile could there be an opportunity for mobile here yeah if wishes could come true they'd click their heels and they'd say emv push it off for five years because mobile come in here. Yes, there's always this problem where we're, we're not in step with the world as far as format. But even Bank of America said, look, you know, 12% of my customer base cares whether I have an EMV card or not because mm-hmm. they're the only ones going overseas. The rest mm-hmm. of them don't care. So do EMV on the inside that's cheap, but why couldn't we do something that's more mobile-based? And some of these guys dream about the idea of not having a pump terminal at all. You know, if I can push a, a, a payment off my phone, why do I need any technology in my pump head? And we talked uh, over lunch as well about some of the vulnerabilities that we're now seeing with EMV. So it's not that they're entirely counterfeit proof. So some of these shimming attacks that we've heard about at ATMs, and I'm assuming that pay at the pump terminals are also vulnerable to this as well. I could see why petrol stations wouldn't want to make this move to EMV if it's not really going to stop card fraud. It's it's going to certainly be a, a, a problem. You know, now the shunning it has to be an external thing. So it's something that, on the plus side, it's something that has to be on the outside so I should be able to tell the difference versus a clip on the inside but it's there and that's why we still have counterfeit fraud in Europe because in full immersion EMV environments they're getting a full mag stripe read 
when they're shunting that. And then that's being sold for card not present and being sold for other three pushes and go to swipe type of applications. So it won't be going away. And ATMs are going to be just as much at risk as, as dispensers. Yeah, it will be interesting to see um, how all of this unfolds. And I'm really interested to see what happens once we make some of the shifts to EMV and, and the type of fraud that we see. Yeah, yeah. I've been watching really, the, to me, the closest approximation of what we're going to go through is the UK. This is close to our uh, our date, and economically in their banking system, their consumers are very similar to ours. And they went from chip and signature, though, to chip and pen, which makes it not as clear. But you take a look at their fraud, and you know what? <laughs> Lost and stolen is still there. Same size, same size dollar value. CNP has gone through the roof, and yes, counterfeit has seen a big material destruction. Well, in our marketplace, retailers don't have CMP unless you're on the channel. We did take the fraud on lost and stolen, and now we're going to be taking the fraud on counterfeit. That leaves the banks without any fraud. And so the question is, where's the quid pro quo in this? Where's the kumbaya that says we're all going to be invested in this? Because from this point forward, if I were a banker, I would have zero incentive to make any new changes to the payment system to make it safer, because I no longer have that fraud. I wouldn't blame them if they didn't. Well, we'll be talking about that later, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gray, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Sure. No problem at all. Again, we've just heard from Gray Taylor of Conexus. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.